This morning, as we continue our study of the book of Genesis, I want to devote several sermons today and the next couple of weeks to applying the lessons of Genesis chapter 19, which we looked at last week. And so we will begin that this morning, and we will be looking at, for our sermon text, Ephesians chapter 5, and selected verses in that chapter, beginning with verse 1. These are the words of God. Be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ has also loved us and given himself for us. Verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Verse 31, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Quoting there Genesis 2:24. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open your word to us today. Let us see its truth and all your glory and power. Wash over us, Lord, shape our understanding, shape our hearts, our loves, our passions. Shape our wills, Lord, that we would live and be to the praise of the glory of your grace. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week in our study of Genesis, we looked at God's judgment upon the city of Sodom in Genesis 19. It's a passage which we cannot cover in our day and culture without raising immediate questions concerning God's design for male and female marriage, sex, and procreation in the Bible. And specifically, God's design that sex is only for marriage. Marriage is only for one man with one woman bound together by oath for life. In our day, it is taken for granted that human happiness and blessing are to be found in defining one's own identity and in giving full expression to whatever sexual desires one may have in whatever sexual arrangements one may want. And therefore, by definition today, any attempt to restrict or guide people's freedom in defining themselves and living out their sexual desires is considered both harmful and wrong. And so when we consider a passage such as Genesis 19, we have an elephant in the sanctuary. I want to talk about the elephant because that tends to be what everyone is thinking about anyway. And it'll take us two or three sermons to discuss the elephant. But I want to start today by talking about the why of God's design for male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation. And I'll give you a preview. What we are going to see in a nutshell is that the why of God's design for male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation lies deep within His glorious intention that we 
as his sons and daughters, should know and imitate him, growing in his likeness as we participate in his life, work, joy, and glory. Let me say that again. The why of God's design for male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation lies deep within his glorious intentions that we, as his sons and daughters, should know and imitate him, growing in his likeness as we participate in his life, work, joy, and glory. Now that is what it's all about. And when I say that's what it's all about, I am talking about male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation, but that's not all I'm talking about. When I say that's what it's all about, I mean that's what it's all about. That's what the Christian life is all about. After all, what is eternal life according to Jesus? Knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, John 17, 3. What is taking place in us during the Christian life? According to 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are beholding in Christ the glory of the Lord while being transformed into his image from glory to glory. That is, from glory to ever greater glory by the Spirit of the Lord. What did Jesus tell his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion? that he wanted his joy to remain in them and for their joy to be made full, John 15, verse 11. Now, Paul sums all of this up in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19, by saying that God's purpose is nothing less than that we be filled with all the fullness of God that we be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, he's not talking about us becoming God. He is God. We are not. That will not change. But when he says filled with all the fullness of God, what he's saying is that we come to be fully conformed to God's image. And we come to fully reflect his character and his glory. That is fully what it means for us to be his children, to be his sons and daughters. Now, to fulfill these glorious purposes, one of the most important things that we have to learn in order to imitate God and become like him is we have to learn to love as God loves. Ephesians 3 again, starting at verse 17. Paul here prays, for what we're going to need in order to be filled with all the fullness of God. And what does he pray for? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words... We have to fully know the love of God, which he says passes knowledge. We have to know the unknowable. We have to be overwhelmed with that which cannot be taken in. We have to know the full extent of God's love. Now, God's love was known in creation. Everywhere in creation, there's God's love everywhere. 
But that's not the full extent of God's love. The full extent of God's love was displayed in only one place, and that was on the cross of Christ, where God the Son became one of us, went to the cross for us, freely offered himself in worship to the Father, and as a sacrifice for us to deliver us from the power of Satan, sin, and death. Only there is the full extent of God's love seen. That's what we have to come to know. This is why we have to learn to love the way God loves in order to fully image Him so that we may be filled with all His fullness. Look at our summary text in Ephesians chapter 5. Notice how this well-known passage where God uh, gives directions to Christian husbands and Christian wives, notice that this is not a topic of itself. This is a subtopic underneath the heading of verse 1. Be imitators of God as dear children. That's what chapter 5 is about. Being imitators of God as dear children. Well, what do we need to do to imitate? What do we need? What's the headliner in terms of what we need to do to imitate God? We have to love. And so he says, walk in love as also Christ has loved us and given himself for us. Okay, then beneath that, we're given specific instructions for Christian wives and Christian husbands, which once again deal with imitation. Husbands are to imitate Christ. Love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Wives are imitating the glorified church, subjecting themselves to their own husband as the church does to Christ. And then in verse 31, he quotes Genesis 2.24, where God ordains human marriage before the fall. He joined Adam and Eve together in marriage, and Eve is called Adam's wife before sin ever entered the world, when God says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, God was talking about two different things at the same time. He was talking about Adam and Eve, and therefore human marriage. At the same time, he was talking about the ultimate reality which we are reflecting, which is Christ and the church. God the Son and the human race, because you see, the church is what the human race was created to be. And so God's design for male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation is all about glory and blessing, the glory and blessing of learning to love like God loves. And it is entirely unnecessary otherwise. Now, that's not something we're accustomed to thinking about because we tend to think of male and female marriage, sex, and procreation as necessary in order to propagate the human race. But you see, that is not true. God doesn't need those things to propagate the human race. He could have made us like he did the angels all at once and fully developed We see in the book of Job that the angels were made when it says God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens are created fully and fully glorious and fully filled with angels who are fully glorious. 
the earth and man are created undeveloped and have to develop over time. And so we see in Job 38, God says to Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The the angels were there witnessing it at the time. He could have made us the same way. God did not need to proceed through human marriage and procreation, one baby at a time with nine months of pregnancy and 20 years of raising. The question is, why did God go to all the extra time and trouble? That's the question we need to be asking. The answer is to give us the privilege of learning to love like he loves while participating in his creational work to the end that we would be filled with all his fullness. So male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation are like a diamond necklace. They are sheer extravagance on God's part. They are all about gift and glory. That is what explains the why of God's design. And we don't have time to look at all of the different ramifications of that this morning, but I want to look at at least six of the major why questions we ask with regard to these things. Why question number one, why only the opposite sex in marriage? Why can't we marry the same sex, an animal, or an object in God's design? The answer, in short, is because God's spiritual bride is fundamentally other from God while at the same time fully corresponding to him. That last phrase I left off of your outlines, you'll want to write that in. God's spiritual bride is fundamentally other from him. I'll explain that in just a minute while at the same time fully corresponding to him. When God loves us, he is loving those who fully correspond to him in the sense that we are made in his images, while at the same time he is loving those who are completely other from him, completely different from him, because we are creatures. You see, you can't get more other, you can't get more different than the difference between God as the infinite, eternal creator and us as finite, mortal creatures. And yet God loves us and joins himself to us and gives himself to us in Christ. In the same way, reflecting all of that, in marriage as God designed it, we have the privilege of loving as God loves of joining ourselves to someone who fully corresponds to us as the image of God, and yet, as a member of the opposite sex, is also fundamentally other from us, different from us. Someone who looks different. Someone who moves differently. Someone who thinks differently. Who relates differently who needs differently, who gives differently. And if you've been married, you know what I'm talking about. 
And you see, by God's design, it is precisely this otherness, this difference. It is the mystery of the other. It's the wonder. It's the parts that we can't fully understand and can't fully take in. That is what is intended to draw us both to God spiritually and to one member of the opposite sex in marriage. If you look in the Psalms, you can see what draws us to the living God. Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You've hedged me in behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. And it is those that that otherness, that mystery and wonder of God is what leads the psalmist to say in Psalm 73, verse 25, There is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Our ultimate desire, love, commitment, loyalty, and devotion is to be to the true and living God. But we see the same thing by God's design when it comes to the opposite sex. Read Song of Solomon chapters 4 through 8 sometime. Just sit down and read it and ask yourself, what is it? that is drawing this, this young couple together these, uh, these in, the, that are engaged to be married. What is drawing them to the other? In each case, it is the things they cannot explain, the things that are different about the other one. It's too wonderful for them to take, take in. That is what fascinates them. That is what captivates them. That is what draws them. And that is the way that God intended it. And in this regard, there is a book that I would recommend that you read. Uh, it is called Why Gender Matters. Why Gender Matters. It is by Dr. Leonard Sachs. He is not a Christian. He is not coming from a Christian perspective. He is coming from a medical and a scientific perspective. But he is an honest scholar. Uh, Dr. Sachs uh, graduated from MIT at age 19. And then he went on to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania, which is an Ivy League school. And he got his MD at the same time as he got his PhD in psychology. So he's he's one of those people. Um, But he... um, because of parents coming to him with children, he was a family practitioner. He had to get involved in, in basically different troubles that kids were having in school, ADHD, all of that different kind of stuff. And he ended up putting together this book. This is all peer-reviewed research. None of this is coming from a religious perspective, but it is coming from an honest perspective. And I thought I pretty much knew the differences between male and female. I knew nothing. I knew nothing. I think it would help every one of you, every husband, every wife, every teacher, to read this book and see what the studies actually show.
So that brings us then to why question number two. Why do we take an oath for life in marriage? The answer is because God took an oath forever for us. Hebrews 6.17 God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, the unchangeability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. And therefore we can be assured that nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.39 Why question number three? Why only one spouse in marriage? Why not polygamy? The answer is because God has only one bride, the church, forever. Why question number four? Why does only the union of male and female produce new human life? The answer ultimately is because only the union of Christ and humanity produces new spiritual life. We looked at this text this morning as part of our gospel message, Romans 8, verse 10. If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Why question number five? Why is the household of husband and wife the proper and most beneficial environment for the nurture of children? The answer is because God's household, the church, is the proper and most beneficial environment for the nurture of God's spiritual children. Even in the case of God's only begotten Son, Jesus, God placed him in the home and under the care and authority of a man and his wife, even though they were sinners and Jesus was not. You see, this was not some make-do. This was God's own way of raising His only begotten Son and the world's Savior and Lord. Why question number six. Why are men to be biblically masculine and women biblically feminine? The answer is because God is the ultimate initiator, protector, provider, self-sacrificer and leader, and thus is the living definition of masculinity, which he then displays toward his bride, the church, and toward creation as a whole. In Acts 17, verse 24, it says, God made the world and everything in it, and he is Lord of heaven and earth. And in verse 25, it says, he gives life and breath and all things to all. Colossians 1, starting at verse 15, Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Male and female, masculine and feminine within marriage, enable us, give us the privilege of imitating the dance 
between Christ and His bride, the church. That's in our sermon text in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. Christ has loved us and given Himself for us. Therefore, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And wives, uh, honor your husbands the same way the church is to Christ. Also, going forward into eternity, because Jesus tells us that in the age to come, we shall not be married or given in marriage, but we will always be brothers and sisters. So male and female, masculine and feminine, as brothers and sisters in Christ forever, enables us to serve and honor and enjoy one another far more gloriously than we could if we were a host of androgynous beings. It is the differences, again, that create the wonder and the glory and give us the opportunity to appreciate one another, to serve one another, to honor one another in special and glorious ways that would not otherwise exist. In conclusion... Male and female, marriage, sex, and procreation are all God's gifts to us. They are exquisite gifts. They are precious gifts. And they are bound up with the nature and ways of the triune God. They are bound up with our identity as God's sons and daughters. They are part of God's great yes to us. All of God's no's in the Bible, all of God's thou shalt nots, are simply to protect His exquisite gifts. They are to protect His yeses. This is why any departure from God's design is not only wrong, but tragic. Because any departure from God's design ends up throwing away His gifts. You see, the enemy of human happiness and blessing is not God or His design. It is fallen man and his trampling of God's gifts. Modern man is made in the image of God despite himself. And so modern man, we see evidence every single day of how he longs to love and be loved. And yet in his Aversion and hostility toward the living God, modern man can find no basis, no reason, no inspiration to render the kind of trust and commitment and duty and service and sacrifice and honor and submission which is integral to the close loving relationships of marriage, family, and the church. Modern man has elevated self above all. And as a result, modern man has become the ultimate orphan, belonging to no one, living for no one but himself, all alone in a world of increasingly detached and isolated individuals. And in spite of his misery, modern man keeps doubling down denouncing as evil and oppressive the very relationships God created in marriage and family and the church, which God created for our blessing and which are necessary for our happiness. 
It's very obvious in Genesis 1 and 2 that God created Adam and Eve for a particular relationship with one another. A relationship in which they would be bound. Now, how can being bound ever give freedom and blessing? Well, God binds himself to us. He binds himself to us forever. It is the nature of God to bind himself in love. That's what he does because that's who he is. And that's who we are supposed to be. And so we see the great irony that contrary to the conviction of the modern world, that freedom and actualization and realization and fulfillment all come from being able to detach oneself from any kind of bonds of a relationship, um, to, to either stay free of all bonds and expectations or else be able to extricate yourself from any relationship at any time for any reason. That is considered to be fulfillment and actualization and the key to happiness today. But it is the opposite. God created us for these relationships. As a result of the loving bonds of these relationships, we become more of a man, not less. You become more of a woman, not less. We become more of a person, not less. That is the great paradox. So only by returning to the true and living God through Jesus Christ, which necessarily means turning away from the modern idolatrous faith in autonomous man, only by embracing our true identity as the image of God, only by pursuing the relationships which God created in marriage, in family, in church, can modern man find the love, life, and blessing that he's longing for and that he was created for? The answer is not running. The answer is coming home. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.